Welcome to Songs and Stories, the Not For Musicians Only music podcast. Welcome once again to Songs and Stories. My name is Michael Gaither, and this is Songs and Stories, episode number 39. You know, I was looking over these last few episodes, actually these last several episodes I've done, and what became, or what started as a look at independent music and became sort of this interview series has now become really a focus on local artists and independent songwriters, which I think is is kind of a cool thing. Um, last time we talked with Chuck McCabe in the last couple episodes, he has a new CD out called Creatures of Habit in a World of Change. And a couple episodes before that, I talked with Jeff Kayser of the Bay Area old-time string band, The Crooked Jades. Now, if you recall that interview, they don't really get out and play a whole lot because they're kind of spread out, even though they're, they're based out of San Francisco. But their new album, Shining Darkness, is finally out. It's out online. It's in stores. You can get to it from the crookedjades.com website, also from my site, michaelgaither.com. And I just learned they're going to be doing a quick series of release concerts here in the Santa Cruz and San Francisco Bay Areas. On Thursday, August 14th, they'll be at Monterey Live in Monterey, California. On Friday, they'll be at the Crate Place in Santa Cruz, California, which I'm going to be at the following week on the 20th. And that Saturday, on Saturday, August 16th, they'll be at the Freight and Salvage up in Berkeley, all to celebrate the release of Shining Darkness, and they'll be heading north to do some shows up in Washington. So if you're curious about those and how to get to see them, um, go to my site, michaelgaither.com. It's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-G-A-I-T-H-E-R.com. And there'll be links to those shows and some information about the new CD. And probably I'll post a review of it as well in a couple of days. So have a look there. So speaking of local artists, this one's actually kind of special. Um, Her name is Vienna Tang. And I think one question a lot of independent artists have at some point is, when do I quit my day job or should I quit my day job? And this one is kind of kind of personal because we actually used to work in the same building at the same company together. Uh, several years back, um, Vienna was a Vienna was a, a computer programmer at a company. Well, I won't say the name, but it rhymes with Crisco and um, big computer company. I still work there, and um, I really met her right about the day she was leaving. I I knew who she was, and I was just starting to write songs at that point. I had a handful of songs of my own at that point. This is like, oh, seven years ago or so. And um, knew who she was. We kind of worked together, didn't really know each other. And then I learned she was a songwriter, and she happened to be leaving that day, and she was handing out her demo CDs because she she wasn't allowed to sell them at that point because she was signed to a label. But we talked for a while, and then last winter, when this interview actually took place, we sat down and caught up, and I learned what she'd been up to since she left the day job and decided to become a musician full-time. Um, she was actually on tour for her third release, which is called Dreaming Through the Noise. She's currently working on a new CD, so she'll be talking kind of about her writing process a little bit. Um, she'll also be here in the Bay Area at the end of this month on August 24th. Vienna Tang will be at the Outside Lands Music Festival up in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, California, and there's a link to, on that to my for my site as well. Um, also, one interesting anecdote is that as soon as she left our day job, she um, was on David Letterman not even two weeks later, and people at work, from their perspective, thought that you just, you know, you you, you quit your jo- job, you go to be a musician, and then you get called to play David Letterman. And, and they said, well, 
are, are you going to do that? And I said, well, I think that was probably in the works for a while. Uh, it's not quite that simple. But uh, for her, in her case, uh, well, you'll, I'll let her tell the story. It's kind of a neat story. But before we talk to Vienna Tang, let's go ahead and listen to a couple of things off Dreaming Through the Noise. We're going to hear a little bit of Whatever You Want, and then a little bit of a song called City Hall, and then we'll talk with Vienna Tang at, um, actually at Cuomo Jazz Center backstage last winter in Santa Cruz, California. He's a company Parents of the Bay Area, correct? Yeah. 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 Well, it's nice to see you again. It's great to see you. Yeah. <laughs> so last time I saw you, mm-hmm. that's kind of, I think when I officially met you was when you were handing out CDs and leaving. Oh, okay. And I was at the point where I just really had my first batch of songs, so I went, wow, somebody's leaving and they can, yeah. <laughs> so last time I saw you were leaving Cubicle World right. to go basically play on David Letterman. People at, people at work thought, wow, she just... She just quit and she's on Letterman. I think, no, things won't just... This was laid out a little bit in advance. Right. So I, I guess, um, I, you know, first of all, um, 
What was Letterman like? Then we'll back up a little bit. Oh yeah, that was. And that was what four? Yeah, it was um, almost five years ago because it was at the beginning of '03. Right. Okay. Um, So we're coming up on '08. Yeah. So almost five years ago. Um, It was it was weird because uh, it was one of the first things that happened to me Mm -hmm. once I started doing music full time, which is pretty backwards because usually you take a long time to work your way up to that point. Right. And then, you know, um, but. yeah, I, I basically got called kind of out of nowhere because I'd been profiled on NPR, mm-hmm. and I think Dave Letterman had heard that program and then thought, well, oh, okay. we have a cancellation or an, or an open spot or something. Right. And it just so happened that uh, that I got to go and do it. So mm-hmm. it was it was kind of nerve wracking in that I spent a lot of energy trying not to think about how big a deal it was. Right. <laughs> But oh, it it's a gig. I'm playing two songs. Exactly. It's like, oh yeah, I play with a full band called the CBS Orchestra all the time. You know, yeah. like I'm in front of TV cameras. Sure, this is natural. And Paul Schaefer always goes nuts when you finish playing. <laughs> I remember that. I was like, Paul, they really liked you. They really did. It was very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. It, the whole thing with and. and the, the really dark confession is that I don't even watch TV, mm-hmm. so I didn't really know what any of this stuff was. I didn't know how it usually worked or okay. what it was supposed to look like. So I had to get all these. Uh, which might have made you less intimidated by the whole thing, maybe. In a way, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, the thing that really helped is that one of the guests that night was Simon Cowell from American Idol. Oh, I forgot about and that. And the fact that I didn't know what American Idol was was really useful. That probably helped. <laughs> if you knew Simon was on the same show yeah, as... that would yeah. have been bad. That's funny. <laughs> but it was really fun. I remember uh, I, I remember Soundcheck being the most enjoyable thing. Mm-hmm. I felt like, wow, th- if... I can really be here playing with these musicians, and we're all kind of at work, you know, mm-hmm. making music together. If I can have gotten to this point, I think that you know, life is pretty good. <laughs> life doesn't suck. Yeah, and the uh, the actual taping, of course, I spent the whole time just like trying to stay focused. Right. Um, so I, I don't really remember a whole lot of it, to be honest. Uh, it was just it went to, well. Like, it went as well as well as possible. Yeah, I was going. I was sitting here watching watching the tape with my wife. I know her from work. <laughs> and, and Paul's going nuts, and she's on Letterman. It was so cool. Oh yeah, it was we were so all quite proud of you. you know. Oh, that was. Uh-huh. I heard that I got played at the 9 a.m. bagel meeting or something. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I brought so a tape cool. around. It was a big deal. You know. Wow, that's so cool. So um, I read in one interview that you you said you actually started recording. Um, your, I think your first CD before you were really actually playing out you said you kind of did it backwards in a way yeah a lot of things in, in this journey have been backwards yeah. um, cart before horse sort of things yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't really perform a lot when I was in college mm-hmm. uh, but I did meet this guy um, who became a good friend of mine and um, was taking audio engineering classes mm-hmm. and he was a bit of an anomaly in that he didn't have a band of his own um, okay. So he needed, he actively had to seek out music to record in order to complete his assignments. Perfect. So that worked out pretty perfectly yeah. for me. Um, and that's kind of how my first album ended up being made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only until like a little after I had released that CD, basically, that yeah. I started playing shows. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't really gotten used to that. That is yet. kind of backwards. Yeah. <laughs> really, you try the songs out for a couple of years and figure right. these work and these don't. But, but then again, having a CD is, I mean, really, it's like having a business card. Pretty much, yeah, that's that's what I realized. And even more backwards is that I feel like my music got released before I even made an album, because what would happen was, uh, what happened was that I would make these sort of home recordings on mm-hmm. some scratchy, hissy tape recorder, Yeah. Uh, because a friend of mine had requested that I record the song that I'd finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and unbeknownst to me, that that tape would get 
copied and then sent to you know her grandmother in Georgia, who would then send it on to like some other folks. And <laughs> you had your street teams working. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. I had these you know hissy tape recordings going out before my CD went out. So, um, but that was a really nice, encouraging sign too. Yeah. Uh, well. At the time, you know, I was studying computer science and right. I was going into programming, and I, I knew I enjoyed it, but I didn't think I was particularly good at it, mm -hmm. and certainly not so interested in it that I, I felt like my my passion for it would be an asset necessarily. Right. right. So it was like really I, have, I have to I have to code, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. There's some people who are you know driven by oh, that yeah. kind of by that you know kind of drive, but uh, I I really felt like I need to figure out what I'm meant to do, yeah. or you know what what I really enjoy and mm -hmm. what I'm good at. So the fact that you know my really rough recordings were being circulated and distributed, you know, I thought, well, maybe that's a sign that people do actually want to hear this stuff. And yeah, I think as a as a songwriter, when you when people that it happened with me with this with this disc, when people that don't know you like your songs, it's very validating. Right. People who have no vested interest in right. liking or disliking you. Um, you know, some radio station or somebody or a podcast or somebody picks it up and they start playing it. You know, or somebody walks up to you because you played a song at a gig, and they, oh, I, I have to have that song. Right. Like, okay, I don't know you. This means the song's okay, and I'm doing the right thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so you started getting that just from hissy tapes before you even had CDs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty, pretty uh, nice confidence boost. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we did finish the first CD, and we put that out. Um, and I started playing around here in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. mostly in Mountain View and San Jose, yeah. a little bit in San Francisco. Um, there's actually a pretty great quote which um, my my label guy chastised me for when the interview came out. I was interviewed by the Mountain View Voice very mm -hmm. early on, and I said something very ignorant and flippant about like, well, yeah, I like playing down in Mountain View in San Jose. I don't know if there's much of an interesting music scene going on in San Francisco. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> because I hadn't spent a lot of time there, so yeah. I, I just knew that there were a lot of I just had been exposed to like bad rock bands up there, so right, that was my right. impression. <laughs> right. Of course, since then I found out there's all kinds of amazing music. Yeah, and I think as a performer, it's kind of like where, where can you get booked? That's where you think the scene's at. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And I've discovered that in traveling around the country too. I realized that I really enjoy certain cities, and mm -hmm. I really have fond memories of a lot of certain areas yeah. of the country. But then I realized it has so much to do with context, you know, who has been welcoming and where has it been harder. And Which audiences have welcomed your music, that kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. And um, I, I've met some folks, you know, who hate Austin, whereas I love Austin, you uh -huh. know, who think that Cleveland is spectacular, whereas I've never had a good time in Cleveland. Right. Who hates so. Austin? I don't know. <laughs> some people do. Somebody, yeah. Right <laughs> so, um, so when you were doing this on your own at first, so that you were doing this, so doing your own press kit, Doing your booking your own gigs. Did you just kind of with a trial and error? Was it people were the people you were learning from? It was very much trial and error. I know that one of my weaknesses is that I I don't tend to ask for help nearly as often as mm -hmm. I should or ask for advice. Uh, so when I first started out, I, I I kind of looked online a lot for where the good venues might be. Right. I bought you know the musicians atlas and stuff like that. But I didn't really go to anyone and say, "Here, you know, you're doing what I would like to be doing. Mm -hmm. How how do you do that? You know, how how, how did you get to where you are?" Right. And I really should have asked those questions because I, I basically had a miserable first couple of months of it. 
because <laughs> I was you know making all these really unconvincing cold calls to venues mm-hmm. you know, asking them to book me and they would never call me back and so it, it was it's it would have been really like nice to yeah unanswered emails yeah you know and you're spending you're, the whole day doing things that go nowhere yeah or you write them back two weeks later saying in case the first one didn't come to you, I'm just, you know, you try to <laughs> right. be, you try to like soft pedal it. Right. Just to like remind them again that you wrote them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So who's behind you now? Do you have a publicist now and a manager? And I do, yeah. It's, it's is it, really, really nice. Um, is it easier? Is it different? I feel like now the main thing is, is coordination. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I know what I would like to do, say, you know, for the month of January or something. Okay. And then, but then I have, I, communicate that to say the booking agent who arranges my right. shows and tours and we sort of talk about what's feasible and what's um, what makes sense and then we talk to my manager about what else what other projects might be on the horizon mm-hmm. like you know if this collaboration with this writer in LA comes through then we have to make sure I'm available for that but yeah, these yeah. are yeah. but these are all really good um, challenges and issues to deal with you know the right. fact that there is work and there are really cool opportunities yeah, and, you're, you're not, and it's not—it's not just you taking half a day to sift through 500 emails, right? Probably <laughs> and put it into a spreadsheet and track it. So it's good having people behind you. Yeah, exactly. Somebody wants that. Oh. Hello, yeah, I your little jackets, uh, sweatshirt type. Oh, yeah, the long sleeve T-shirts are 20, and these sweatshirts are 25. <laughs> so what's your, time, what's your time look like? I want—I want to get to. Oh, what time is it now? Quarter after. Oh, quarter after? Yeah, we go on at 7. Okay. So, yeah. I'll give you time to relax. Um, let's jump ahead. So so leaving high tech, and then you just... Well, um, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, but... Uh, good thing I can edit this. Um, <laughs> what made you decide it was okay to make that jump? Um, when I took the job um, at Cisco... I had actually, <laughs> this is something you could only have done in the late 90s, <laughs> I remember in my job interview um, saying that I had some other things outside of work that um, were pretty important to me, mm-hmm. and it was, I kind of wanted to know what was expected of me um, at work in terms of the hours and things sure. like that, so that I could learn how to balance my mm-hmm. life. Um, because I, I had, at that point, I had this kind of plan that I was going to take two years and work at a company, you mm-hmm. know, have a job and all of that, but also really try to put together um, a way to pursue music. And I didn't really know what form that would take. Yeah. I, I basically gave myself two years to make a leap. To know? have a good day job and plan things behind the scenes, sort of? Yeah, basically. Kind yeah. of like a business plan? Yeah, yeah. it was kind of like that. Uh, so... I started pursuing it on two different fronts. Of course, I recorded the CD and released yeah. it and started to play shows locally. Um, I sent the CD out to different music uh, record labels mm-hmm. and things like that. But at the same time, I was also applying to music school, uh, Berklee College of Music oh. in Boston. So I was kind of pursuing it on a couple of different fronts just right. to see you know, which what one took? of them would work out. And the whole two-year deadline worked out pretty um, miraculously, because right around the two-year mark, I heard back from Berkeley and heard that I've gotten admitted mm-hmm. with, a, with a small scholarship. And at the same time, I also had a record label come to me and say, "Hey, we're interested in." So they both came out. Music. Yeah, they all—they both kind of converged at the same time, and this was right around you know when I thought mm-hmm. you know, I have to make a leap of some kind. Right. So um, 
I suppose Ajang could tell you this. <laughs> Around that time, I started getting um, distinctly busy with things outside of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did actually take some time off, mm-hmm. uh, not a vacation, but I went to Nashville to record right. um, some of my songs uh, in anticipation of the release. So at that, it just kind of hit a point where I really started to feel like I was being unfair to the company I was working for. That makes sense. And that was kind of the point where I'm like, yeah. you know what, this is really not... Uh, professional to be well that was good and plus you had and plus you had two possible goals or two possible avenues and they both popped up so right and you know i guess it's a sign of some kind yeah 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 that's great yeah um let's talk about songwriting influences who who influenced you i would say my earliest influence would be simon and garfunkel that would be pretty, pretty clearly the main one um i grew up with Simon and Garfunkel records. Mm-hmm. And I remember learning them before I could really even speak English. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I also remember they were the first lyrics that I ever sat down and really tried to understand, you know, how mm-hmm. they were written. And so I, I think that was the main one. And of course, later on, I encountered Elton John and Billy Joel, who yeah. piano players. Right. And right. that was exciting because I was studying classical piano. I thought, mm-hmm. oh, here's another way I can use piano. Um, I love Disney movies, so of course, like transcribing all the popular Disney songs onto piano was, mm-hmm. was a hobby of mine. Let's see what else. Um, and in high school, at near the end of high school, beginning of college, um, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to Tori Amos. I was going to say when did Tori Amos come because I, I first yeah. time I heard your music, I thought, yes, there's a, definitely a Tori Amos. Tour. Yeah, so that was that was a big turning point for me because yeah. although Elton John and Billy Joel, of course, are great piano players right. and great songwriters. They still weren't quite in the style that I really felt natural sure. playing with. And then then I heard Tori Amos' music where she was really using a very classically influenced sounding piano mm-hmm. in rock music. Yeah. And that was really an exciting sound for me to yeah. encounter. With the introspective lyrics and it all worked. Right. So that was a... I think that was she was a major influence for sure. And then in college also encountered Sarah McLaughlin and her, her way of singing was really yep. influential too. Yeah. Very cool. I would say those are the main ones. And then these days they, they they've gotten really weird, like Radiohead and yeah. Kanye West. And well, probably being, <laughs> being probably being you know out in music too, you're hearing a lot more too, and there's so many more influences probably things you like that come across. And I I've, I've seen your name listed at a couple of festivals with some really eclectic kind of artists. <laughs> She's really making some headway. This is very cool. I forget which one. It was some festival back east you played, and you were. I forget it was. Oh, I think you're probably thinking of uh, the one in Colorado because I was I, I was so. fascinated that we were invited to play that one too. Because yeah. Cake and Flaming Lips were the ones headlining. And there were some jam bands, I think. Yeah, there were a lot of jam bands. There was. And Diana uh, Tang, wait the ball. <laughs> yeah, like, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, it was a really fun festival to play too because we um, we played in, in kind of the quiet acoustic stage. Oh, nice. And then when we were done, we got to go up, you know, into the Red Rocks Amphitheater and. To the top, where mm-hmm. there were these really loud rock bands playing, and then you come back down. There was some jam band, or like, oh, and then we got to see the Flaming Lips, you know, release their 500 orange balloons onto the crowd. How fun! <laughs> yeah, it was a really good time. That's very cool. Very cool. But yeah, it does it does send us to some unusual circum you know circumstances, and yeah. get exposed to a lot of really interesting music. Yeah. Sure. And w- when did writing come along? Have you always written? Was it after you were transcribing Disney songs and when did you kind of like find what you wanted to say? <laughs> well, kind of like uh, Larry Wall said that he invented Pearl because he was lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I started writing because I was a lazy sight reader. Um, 
I, I remember I would study piano pieces that my piano teacher assigned me, and I just couldn't really read very fast. Mm-hmm. So I would basically just kind of hear what it was supposed to sound like and then try to figure out what mm-hmm. my fingers were supposed to do. And I think that's sort of where writing came from, that I started I like thinking more of, about it in, in hearing terms rather than reading terms. Right. And so I started writing piano piece, composing piano pieces when I was about six years old. And then somewhere wow. around like 11 or 12, I think around the time I encountered Billy Joel and mm-hmm. Elton John, I, I started thinking that I could write lyrics to it too. Yeah. And uh, lyrics are a lot harder because it's very easy for lyrics to be really bad. Yeah. <laughs> if it rhymes I, and rhythmically it works. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that took me a while. I felt like I wrote some really terrible songs for about six or seven years. And... I'm st- it still is the thing that's hardest for me to do is to write lyrics. Yeah, I think for me it's um, writing was, you know, it's 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 hard to learn cover tunes, but I can always remember my own songs. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Too lazy to like learn all these cover tunes, but you you, you know. Right, because when you make it up, you have to really invest. There's a so reason you're thinking of these images or this right. idea, and it sticks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking to someone recently too about uh, classical music, and she was asking, do you feel like you use a different part of your brain when you play classical piano as opposed to playing piano in like pop music or mm-hmm. your own songs? And I really do think so because when you learn music from a page, you, you kind of approach it differently, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy for me to not really think about the decisions that the composer made and just sort of assume that it's sort of, you know, it was like spontaneously generated in this form. Is that because that style's more more intricate or more... Or more set or more thought planned out, maybe? Yeah. That's possible. Um, but I do remember a couple of times when my piano teacher would sit me down and kind of take a, a, almost a jazz theory approach to the music, he mm-hmm. would say... Or I guess you could just say an analysis. Yeah. She's like, well, see here where, like, Debussy is... He, you kind of expect the chord to go here, but then he turns it here. Like, he introduces this one note here, and, like, why does he do that? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because he wants to take it in this other direction, which then leads to this whole section. And that's how he sort of navigates his way into this other thing that he wants to talk about. And I find that I'd, I, I would not really actively think about music that way mm-hmm. when I was studying classical music, unless I was walked through it. Yeah. But when you're trying to, you know, transcribe a pop song or you're trying to write a pop song, of course mm-hmm. you have to think about like, how am I going to get from here to here? Yeah. And why do I want to get there? Right. <laughs> and so on. So it's it, I really enjoyed that whole. Um, learning process, you know, the, the sort of geeky taking apart a song and like figuring out how it works and then putting it back. Well, to it's me. probably sort of your your um, you know your computer analysis part of your brain probably active being active <laughs> too. It's kind of like coding with music. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to reverse engineer a feature. That was going to say exactly. You're reverse engineering a classical piece. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so is there a new CD in the, in the works? Are you planning some downtime to write? Do, do you actually do you write on the road, or do you have to like have time set aside? What's I feel your, like I write best when I have a lot of time at home. Um, I'm hearing that from a lot of people that I've been talking to. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't write very well on the road. I wish I did because then it would come out with music a lot faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I really do need uh, um, time at home, not only at home, but to sort of get into a different routine that's not about music necessarily mm-hmm. and then sort of be caught off guard by ideas yeah. that I come up with. Yeah. Um, there's no better feeling than getting an idea and then knowing what you want to do with it and then 
staying up all night to kind of work it all out. Yeah. I'm sure that you can... Really yeah, what's hard is when you get a great idea and you're too busy to really let it gel. Right. <laughs> it's like, damn it! So you write it down and you just hope you have that same feeling when you come back to it in right. your notebook if you find it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but having the time is great. And that was the main reason... Uh, because my parents were, they were pretty supportive of my going to music. They just really didn't have any idea of what it entailed. Right. So they were kind of worried about it. They're like, well, how do you make a living doing that? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and how do you make a living doing that for more than two or three years? Yeah. Um, how, you know, how does this whole thing work? And so one of the questions they asked was, do you, why do you want to do this professionally as opposed to as a hobby? You know, for sure. a hobby. You know, couldn't you have a job that pays the bills and that you like reasonably well and that allows you the lifestyle to, you know, well, make you could, music. but, yeah. <laughs> and my answer to that was, uh, it, was a, it was a matter of time. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to have, I have to be doing it full time in order for me to reach the level that I want to be at musically. Right. And so I really feel like, uh, I, I feel very fortunate now to have that luxury, mm-hmm. you know, that it is my job to write songs, and so I get up in the morning and I do some administrative stuff, but most of my task is to sit down at the piano and really try to... Let something come. Of, yeah, let something come, and then to work on it when it does come. So, cool. It's pretty, pretty great life, I have to say. Life's not bad. Yeah. It doesn't suck. It doesn't suck. <laughs> so, is there a plan for a next CD, or are you, are you just... I am. I am writing for the next CD. Uh, I don't know when it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still in the writing process now, so it basically yeah. depends on whenever this batch of songs that I like gets completed mm-hmm. and then we start talking about producing the actual recording and then how to release it and so on. Cool. <laughs> I'll look forward to it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. So there you have it. Vienna Tang backstage at Quimba Jazz Center in Santa Cruz, California last winter. Again, she'll be at the Outside Lands Festival in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, California on Sunday, August 24th, that's the same day that Toots and the Maytals, um, Jack Johnson, Wilco, a lot of people are on the bill, and she's there as well. Uh, you can find links to that on my site, michaelgather.com. And again, she's working on a new CD. This will be her fourth CD. Uh, you can find out about more about that on her website. And also, I got a songwriter, pal, Bev Barnett, who's introducing me to all the social networking stuff online besides... The, the obvious thing is MySpace, but now Facebook is another really popular site, and so is this new thing called Twitter, which is sort of mini-blogging, and um, I have uh, accounts on both those sites if you're into that. And I noticed that Vienna's using Twitter to update uh, her CD progress. She's always talking about working on the vocals or the writing of certain songs and the rehearsing, and um, if you follow her on Twitter, you can find out more about that. There are links to that on my site as well. So uh, that's Vienna Tang, uh, an ex-high-tech employee who left the day job, and she's making a living as a full-time musician and doing quite well at it. So check her out. Uh, there are links to her, links to her from my website. And thanks for listening to Songs and Stories, episode number 39. This is Michael Gaither. If you've found this on my site or in iTunes, or if you happen to be catching this on Grateful Dread Radio on a Friday evening, thank you again for, for listening. And if you have any comments about this episode, you can send me an email at michael at michaelgaither.com or just go to my page, michaelgaither.com, and click the, uh, the contact button there and then leave me a little message there. So, again, thanks for listening. I really appreciate your time. We'll talk to you next time on episode number 40 of Songs and Stories. Mm-hmm.